Our fight to eradicate corruption, maladministration, unethical leaders, and the abuse of taxpayers' money by those in power continues. It's fresh, it's fearless, and focused. The Outer Hour, where your voice matters. Hello and welcome to The Outer Hour. Wednesday 7pm is when you can watch the show live. I'm your host Tom London with you for the next 60 minutes as we discuss. Well this evening we've got a full show. Take a listen to what we're going to be chatting about tonight. We're going to be talking about Eskom price hikes and Outer's take on price increases when it comes to electricity in South Africa. We're going to be talking about Kuburg and what's going on at the NNR specifically when it comes to the board and civil society's participation in it. We're also going to be talking about car power. Remember, if you've watched the show um, and have been a regular viewer to the show, you'll know that we featured the car power ship deals on the show many times before. Also spoken about Outer's objections and Outer's concerns when it comes to car power. And tonight, Chris Yellen joins us. We'll keep updating you on the car power story. And then a big one. If you're a motorist, and uh, even if you're not a motorist, your, your packet of chips at the corner cafe is delivered by a truck and it uses diesel to get there. Uh, and the petrol price and the diesel price is a big talking point in South Africa. So we're going to be talking about the fuel levy tonight. That's towards the tail end of the show. Stick around for that as Wayne and Tabile take us through the components of fuel levies uh, and uh, Outer's position on the fuel levy and what the minister can do to make it a bit easier for the average South African's pocket when it comes to the fuel levy. There's plenty to discuss tonight. and We've got all our team on board. They're all ready to say good evening to you. I'll be popping your hellos up on the screen as we go along. So uh, we'll see each other, say hello to each other on screen. And then, of course, you can chat to your friends that you're making in the community. The comment section below the live video. Put your comments in there. If you've got comments on the, the particular topic we're discussing or if you've got a question that we're discussing, we'd love to put it to the team. And then one a request from me tonight, and I'm going to do this at the front of the show and then remind you as we go through, please drop your tips for the budget speech in the comment section. This is going to help out uh, with the tips that they submit on your behalf. So if you put a tip in the comment section tonight, a tip for the minister when it comes to the budget speech, some idea you've got or some tip you've got, put it in the comment section below the video and Outer will submit those tips to the minister. Uh, you can do that at any time uh, on the show. You can start putting your tips on now and you can think of it through the show and put it on and put it in the comment section at the end. The comms team will look at those tips and integrate it into a report. Uh, and talking about the team that puts the show together, Devaney Davids is the show's producer. Samantha Van Nispen, the head of comms and marketing at Outer, is in the comment section tonight. So if you see the Outer handle, and hello everybody, that's Samantha. You're welcome to say hello to Sam right now if you want. She's sitting just a few meters behind me, uh, man in the comments section. Okay, so let's say good evening, shall we, to the CEO of Outer as it's customary on the show and ask Wayne Divinage how his week has been and how he's feeling on this Wednesday night at 7 p.m. How's it, Wayne? And I'm not getting anything from Wayne. And I'm looking to see whether it's my problem or Wayne's problem. I don't know if you're on mute, Wayne. No, it's mine. It's mine. Okay, there you are. All right, we're good. Okay, how's it? Let's try that again. Wayne Divinage, CEO of Outer. How are you doing, Wayne Divinage? I was on mute there, sorry. Um, no, going well. It's been, a, it's been a great week. Uh, another development this week, um, which maybe Brendan will touch on as well. We, uh, we are uh, um, putting Sanral in the corner for not obeying the judge's orders. Uh, and I think they're hopping uh, mad about that. So, so that's a nice development. But but for me, busy from a point of view of, of lots happening on the fuel front, uh, Tabila and I will talk about that. Um, there's the, the, this is budget speech time. We really have to put pressure on the government. And then strategizing. We're doing a lot of strategy work uh, in our various uh, areas of the uh, of the organization. So having fun with this amazing team. 
Good stuff. All right. Well, seeing that you mentioned it, and it's not on the show's running order tonight, but it is a big news story, and it broke just recently. Let's ask Brendan Slade for commentary on the Sunroll issue and the documents and the information you wanted, Brendan. And the last time we spoke, we were we were wondering whether it would be forthcoming or not. Just take us back to the last uh, time we chatted and what's happened since then, and obviously the media headlines that have occurred uh, when uh, Outer put its foot down and said no. Hi, Tom. Evening, everybody out there, and welcome back. We literally hit the ground running this year. Uh, just to go back in time a little bit on this concessionaire uh, aspect, this is one of our PIA applications against Sunroll for documentation relating to the track contract. So what happened is we obtained an order last year ordering Sunroll to provide us with the documents that we asked for in the PIA request. These doc- documents included financials, uh, statement um, and general contract information that is necessary yeah. for us to determine whether everything was above board. So we got the order granted in our favour. Sunroll had a certain time period in which to adhere to that court order. They did absolutely nothing. Sit back, uh, showed us the finger. They, uh, through their attorneys, they told us that they wished to rescind the judgment. We also gave them time to do so. Uh, by last week, Friday, the 21st. So again, they showed us the finger. And uh, I'm afraid we cannot just let government play the delay in the Stalingrad game uh, until the cows come, mm. come home. Mm. You know? So we, we then launched a contempt of court application that will be heard in May this year, basically forcing Sunroll and the information office we cited to comply with the, with the order granted. And if they do not do so, they may face uh, imprisonment. And that's something for the court to decide. And Brendan, just give us an idea of timelines with this latest challenge. When do you expect new news? New news around the 24th of May or 22nd of May, I speak under correction, then this application will be heard. So in the meantime, uh, not too certain if, if they will bring any form of other interlocutory applications, which, which I doubt. But for now, we are we are gunning ahead for the May date to have this, this contempt application heard by the Pretoria High Court. Good stuff. Uh, Wayne, once again, the outer legal team producing the goods. Developing quite a formidable yeah. reputation. I, I'd imagine if I was sitting on the other side of the fence and I, I, I got a legal challenge that came from Outer's offices, I'd be a little bit worried. You know, Tom, this is the differentiator. When we set out to build a new Outer in 2016, uh, we realized that to hold people's feet to the fire, you need to bring the, the fear of, of courts and challenges and uh, lay charges and and, and do it properly. This, uh, you know, this is not your typical NGO that just exposes and then and then walks away. And and hopefully people react to exposure. But it's, as we've always said, headlines today gone tomorrow. Yeah. Carry on. Yeah. And so we built this formidable legal team uh, under Stefani, and it's uh, proving to be a very successful element uh, of our strategy. Well, we'll keep you updated as an outer hour viewer and an outer supporter, as Brendan said, expecting some news around the. Uh, end of the month uh, and uh, you'll know that we'll bring you the news on the outer hour and all updates related to these matters okay let's get on to our topics tonight and uh, start with Eskom. we're going to start with energy we've got a whole chunk of energy discussion this evening to get through and we're going to start with Eskom price hikes and chat to i call her mrs energy liz mcdade who is uh, in cape town and joins us from her home office we talk about Eskom's proposed price hikes and ask a couple of questions. I've got a few up my sleeve, but if you've got a question for Liz when it comes to the Eskom price hikes, pop it in the comments section now. Liz, how's it? How are things in Cape Town? I mean, I know you guys were complaining about the heat last week because the temperature went up to 28 or something. Is it, is it more acceptable now? <laughs> yeah, it's come down a little bit. So um, we are we were, I think, the hottest place in the world or something sometime last week, which was very interesting. Mm. Um but yes, and as as we we're talking energy and climate change, it's probably going to still be the coolest summer uh, that we've had as as each wow. year, despite the, the high temperatures the other day. Mm. Yeah. All right, Liz. Yeah. Let's let's get down to the nitty gritty of Eskom price increases. Why is Eskom asking for more money? So, well, in in short, one would say because they are failing to actually. Um, 
adjust as a company to the context when, which we are now in. And, and it was quite astonishing to look at their application and to see that the same uh, arguments for price increases are coming through every time. So, you know, no, it's, it's always about the coal that we've run out, we're either running out of coal and we have to look for new coal or there's something happened with the coal um, and each time the, the, the issue is that this, this cost gets added and then it's not a case of going, well, maybe we need to move from coal. There's still this dogged determination to continue along the coal path, which, is, which is, means the price goes up and up and up. So the other aspect is, is around the investment in new infrastructure and and um, we've seen now, and Brendel will talk a little bit, but I just want to mention it because it came up in the MYPD5, is that ESCOM's proposing to uh, put a lot of capital into extending one of our oldest power stations, or one of the old power stations, which is the Kuburg nuclear power station. Mm. And again, there are issues around governance as well as why are we putting 20 billion rand into a plant that's going to supposedly close in 2024 so how, how does that play out um and if it's not going to close you know is that the real number because we know we look at madupi uh, mm. and what happened there but all of these costs get put through directly to people on the ground and they have to pay and and i think that if I can just show you, or not show you, but talk to, so ESCOM has made a quite startling revelation um, this time, which is to say that it's admitted that it's not really trying to provide electricity to everyone, but only to those that pay. Now, if it's a state-owned utility, its role, in our view, is that it must provide energy to drive the economy. Yeah. Um, and what we are seeing is that actually the, the, the ESCOM speak is to say that, um, that, <laughs> that the, the, the price of electricity was historically low, and now they feel it's, it's getting more relevant in terms of, of um, international standards. But then it's very, very interesting. So this is a, an ESCOM speak. Um, it is common cause that as the electricity price increases, now this is the word, some segments of demand may be lost. Now that's you and I um, and, well, and, and others who actually are really you know, desperately scraping in order to be able to afford any mm. electricity. Mm. So these segments of demand, which could be small businesses, it could be households. And their answer is, this speaks to welfare and affordability considerations in the country. Now, that, what does that mean, actually? And then it says, however, those considerations must be balanced with the need to recover efficient costs in order to make electricity available in the first place. So what we draw from that is, yep, you can have electricity if you can afford to carry on uh, paying over and over and over again at a high increasing tariff. And that's really not where we want to be as a country. And so we, we, we think we're in this bind because what we need is a lot more alternative energy, which is cheaper. Tell us about the judgment. Take us through NERSA and, 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 and judgments. Okay, so what has been happening? So, so NERSA put forward, I think... Um, in the end, sort of, a, or, or ESCOM said 20%. But in the, the application, there's a table which talks to between 30 and 40% increases. Um, wow. And the problem is, yes, and the problem is that NERSA has been trying to stop ESCOM price increases. But they haven't been doing it very smartly, and, and they've lost their court cases. So, which means that the costs that NERSA said we, you can't have, now have to be added back. And then that, uh, that means that we have now got to pay more because there's, there's an ever-increasing pile of money that ESCOM demands that must be the cost of which will come through in the tariff. 
So that's kind of alarming because we're in a post-COVID, well, hopefully, uh, almost post-COVID recovery. Um, people have really struggled. And what you would expect the government to do is ensure that electricity prices are kept down mm. in order to mm. help pick up the economy. But we're not seeing that. So I take it that Arthur's position is that this is not justifiable. Clearly, we believe it's not justifiable. We believe that ESCOM needs to seriously look at its costings. It needs to strategize about how it's going to move away from the expensive uh, historical legacy. Um, but we also can't blame ESCOM completely because the Minister of Energy is not doing, the, or the Department of Energy is not doing its bit. We don't okay. have a minister that's driving an alternative future at the moment. You know, whenever we talk about increases, we're talking about what a 20.5% uh, proposed increase or an increase that Eskom was asking for. We, we talk about the, the, you know, the 20% and this is what Eskom's asking for. But I, you know, I'm sitting here and wondering if we swung the question around and said to the outer hour viewers, what could you afford? What would you be prepared to pay? I mean, I accept that the price of things will go up every year as long as there's a, a CPIX rate that's you know sitting around whatever percent it's at. I expect stuff to go up at around the inflation rate. And we know that 20.5% is, no, is way above the uh, official inflation rate in South Africa. Uh, and so I'd like to swing the question around for a couple of minutes and ask you, as you watch the program, what kind of increase would you be prepared to pay when it comes to electricity? Would you, would you, are you, you know, are you in a position where you, you can't afford any more? Or if Eskom came along and said we're 5% or 10 or whatever it might be, what would be a palatable increase uh, when it comes to electricity increases, if any at all? I'd love to know your answer. Uh, Liz, tell me, what's your answer, Liz? <laughs> I was actually going to sort of throw a little curve in. Oh, good. Answer. All right. Throw the curveball. Because there may be listeners who already saw the writing on the wall a few years ago and have actually you know, taken on the, the taking themselves off the grid or even partly off the grid yeah. in order to avoid these increases. Um, and that's also, you know, what at what point did they see that and think, okay, I have to make a plan? Well, I will throw that question in as well. Have you gone off-grid or partially off-grid? Tell us about it in the comments section below the video. So what do you think nurses should do in response to Eskom's application? So when we presented to NERSA, which we, we did as well, one of our key things was to say to them, they must get tough. And we don't believe they interrogate the cost that ESCOM puts forward sufficiently. There's this word called prudent. And mm. basically what that means is you must look at the costs and you must think if I was ESCOM at that time, would that be a reasonable and wise thing decision to have made? And, you know, when we look at it, we think, no. And why did they, you know, often their thing is we didn't sell enough electricity. So therefore, because we sold less, and therefore it costs us more per unit, therefore the public must pay. Why? Because they should have seen we're not going to, to sell as much. And if you, um, if you extend that, uh, not only uh, if, you can't, uh, if you can't afford it, don't pay for it. We're going to increase it. And if people can't afford the increase, they can't have it either. So it just sounds ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let me ask Wayne. I'm going to ask Wayne to respond to a, a viewer's comment here. Uh, Abin Seder says this 20.5% uh, escom increase is obviously an attempt to cover up mismanagement. Is that it at the end of the day, Wayne? Does it all just boil down to mismanagement? And that's why we've seen <coughs> figures of 20.5% as an increase being proposed. Yeah, mismanagement uh, is lumped together with bad leadership, uh, bad vision, uh, uh, lack of accountability, a lack of oversight and a lack of um, putting citizens at the center of decisions that are best for the country. And I think I think Chris Yelland will give you a lot of input, but if you go back to 2007 is where the rot started, when that first multi-year price determination came uh, to, to, to bring or to allow to open the door for these uh, expensive projects, uh, uh, Madupi at the time and then Kusili. And it just went south from there. And then you saw the hijacking of a NERSA. I remember we engaged with NERSA and they looked the other way. Uh, and then it became too late. Now they're trying to put up a fight uh, that is so bad and so weak. Uh, but they, they, they Johnny come lately. The increases, uh, it's probably been about 
400% over mm. the last mm. uh, decade or so. Chris, what are your thoughts there? It's just been yeah. shocking, quite frankly. Now, look, in my thinking, it seems to me that Eskom and Nursa are taking a sort of a business-as-usual approach. They're working out all the costs at Eskom, whatever they may be, and they're working out the revenue and the tariff needed to recover all those costs. It is as though the price of electricity, the customer, is the only solution. <laughs> that every or that the price increase is the panacea to Eskom's debt problems, cash flow problems, uh, problems with municipalities, etc. Just put the price up. But the answer, of course, is that is there's a limit to how much you can put the price up before it impacts on demand and impacts on customers and impacts on the economy. Uh, and, and, and in fact, you put the price up too much, demand will drop and, and, and it's a problem. Then they will want even more money to recover uh, money. We've got to look at a whole armory of solutions simultaneously. Putting up the price is one solution. Government bailouts are another solution. Selling of assets is another solution. Restructuring the business is another. Becoming more efficient is another. Uh, borrowing more money is another. Uh, there's this whole host of options that need to be looked at. Listing on the stock exchange to raise capital, bringing in new management through having more shareholders. Uh, so in my view, uh, there is no way that Eskom's problems can just be solved by the customer and price. And you need to really look at a whole range of, of, of activities conducted simultaneously, of which a small price increase may be Part, part of, of it, it. Yeah. but to simply put the whole burden on the price of electricity is unsustainable. So, as I, you know, well, the way I see it, it's like we've messed this thing up. We don't have enough money, so uh, you pay. Uh, and and exactly. and the the the, the, the points uh, that you made that I'd like to focus on for a second is cost cutting, uh, and ask you uh, if you know whether Eskom. You know, I just look at the last two years of my own life and people around me, and everybody I know around me has been cost cutting, even people that have. Piles of cash in the bank have been cost cutting and cutting their costs and businesses have been cost cutting. At least in the real world, this thing called cost cutting is something we live with on a daily basis. Even when you walk into the spa or the pick and pay, you cost cutting as we go along. Is, does Eskom do the same thing? Do you know if they've been following a, a systematic or strategic plan when it comes to cost cutting? Has there been any cost cutting at Eskom while they're asking for 20% increases? Yeah, I think they have. And, you know, the, the CEO of Eskom has embarked on quite a, a strong program of uh, looking at the entire procurement process and trying to reduce inefficient expenditure, poor procurement, fraudulent procurement. Uh, and, and, and these are some of the successes. And that is part of the armory that one has to look at. Uh, the whole problem cannot be solved just by cutting costs. Not. But certainly cutting costs is one of the many uh, you know, arrows in your quiver that you need to uh, bring to bear in order to solve the big picture. Why are we talking about cut? I, yes, go ahead, Liz. I was going to say, you know, when Chris talks about restructuring, that's also important. Is we our price, our tariff structure is such that Escom spends what it likes, comes up with a with a, a, a tariff based on the expenditure it did. Then, when it doesn't make enough money, it comes back. And we have this thing called the, mm. the clawback mechanism, <laughs> regulatory clearing account, which allows ESCOM to come for a second bite and, and claim more money from us. So taking away that mechanism or reducing its ability would mean that ESCOM would know it's not going to get the second bite. Therefore, it has to plan properly. And that's what, I mean, we've been saying is if you do your mm. homework, then you should come up with a reasonable tariff. And and unfortunately, what is also happening is that now we have a lot of people with solar on the roof and they want to link into the grid for their backup power. Mm. So what ESCOM also outlines when they're nervous about losing revenue is they have to shift the tariff system to make the, the proportion that you pay for what you you were you would call an admin or a um, an availability amount. Mm. Yeah. So you would say well, you've got to pay for the lines to your house. So when the sun goes down, you either have a battery or you go, okay, I'll just plug into the grid. But now ESCOM is going to 
shift that and the municipality is going to have say well that's your largest part of your bill and that mm. way they will offset some of the loss that's going to happen because people shift to solar so the idea is not to think yeah. as we have to change the system the idea is to simply go mm. well how do we make more money out of the customer um while providing them with actually less electricity i suspect that, that's to us Madness. I suspect that as we move towards a world with, filled with electric vehicles and the discussion we're going to have tonight about fuel levies becomes irrelevant in, in years or decades to come, that government will say, well, you bought an electric car, so now you're going to have to pay X amount per month or build it into the price or something because we want our pound of flesh. I mean, I can understand that. The fiscus and and the the government needs money, um, but we also live in in this world where things are changing fast, and you can't hang on to old ideas, and you can't hold on to bloated staff compliments. And there was a comment that came from one of the viewers, and I wanted to add uh, to the question that I had for Chris: Was is Eskom bloated, Chris? Do, do, does Eskom need to get rid of staff? And and I know that's a difficult thing to talk about uh, in South Africa with a high unemployment rate and how difficult it is to get rid of uh, a lot of people in a company. seems today that you just uh, bankrupt the company, give everyone a retrenchment, and then you've got rid of the staff problem uh, and then sell the company to new investors. But uh, is, Eskom, is Eskom too bloated? Are there too many people working Look, at Eskom? It is overstaffed. Eskom acknowledges this themselves. There is some argument about how, how much it is overstaffed. But it, it is clear, Eskom acknowledged that it is overstaffed. It is producing less with more people as time goes by. And they are taking some actions to their credit, but their hands are tied because the president has made it absolutely clear there will be no retrenchments. Yeah. Okay, so they're not going to be retrenchments. Uh, what they're going to be is voluntary severance packages uh, and natural attrition. And it has reduced the Eskom staff complement by a couple of thousand persons. Uh, from about, I think, about uh, 40,000 uh, to somewhat less than that. Uh, but it's it's a slow process. And I suppose, uh, to give credit where it's due, it cannot be a quick process because the labor unions, uh, you know, kind of hold Eskom to ransom. Uh, and if uh, this is done in too radical a, f a way, the labor unions will bring Eskom to its knees, as they did once before mm. when the CEO of Eskom proposed a zero price, a zero wage increase one year to try and bring the price of uh, remuneration under control. Uh, within three days, we went into load shedding as the unions embarked on go slow, stoppages of coal into the plant. They really can stop business uh, and this uh, is so i suppose it has to be done progressively and slowly and this is by people who are becoming more and more inefficient by the day and charging more and more for their inefficiency by the year and if you followed that to its logical conclusion, which is hypothetical, of course, in this case, you'd have a country where only government workers get salaries and then pay the money back to themselves in the form of tax, creating some kind of magical perpetual motion cash machine, which we know doesn't exist. Uh, your comments, Wayne? Yeah, it's um, I mean, it's it's sad that it, that that's the way it is, but uh, they they did as Chris said. Uh, if you go back to two thousand and seven and eight, they they never put out another kilowatt of uh, of energy, and their staff went up by fifteen thousand, I think, to forty forty five thousand from thirty or thirty two thousand to forty five. So it's just madness. And 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 in the real world, in the business world, you can't throw people at the problem. But that's when they dropped all their. All their processes. You mm. talk about increasing costs. Manpower was one. The other one was uh, primary energy. And um, remember Brian Malefi's comments: "We don't want to own the bakery. We just want to buy the bread." And he got rid of all these, you know, attached mines that were producing coal uh, very cheap. So your primary energy cost, and then that was just thrown out the window. So, so we pay today for bad decisions made a while ago, but. But Chris and Lizard, love your comments on Gwedim and Tashi crying now because <laughs> because the uh, because there's funding that goes to NGOs that are making his life difficult. I mean, this guy <laughs> he just dreams stuff up and starts crying when the the heat is turned on by NGOs and says, "Well, you know, you shouldn't be challenging and you shouldn't be bringing about these legal cases that stop us from doing what we want to do." As if to say, well, if you didn't get this money, you wouldn't be able to stop us. And not realizing yeah. that, hey, the law is the law. And however it's funded, if the law says what you're doing is wrong, where they don't blame NGOs 
because they are well funded by the public or internationally or, or wherever. I mean, he's he's lost the plot, hasn't he? I, I laughed at his crying this week. So I think what is critical is all this wailing um, mm. is trying to distract people from the reality, which is that we do not have a proper energy plan. Yeah. Yeah. And when you don't have a proper energy plan, then you can wake up in the morning and go, oh, well, today we'll build a coal fire plant. And tomorrow we'll build a gas fire. There's no, you know, and, and we'll, we'll set up an oil refinery um, because there's no plan that would be scientifically based, evidence-based that would say, this is our best choices of energy for the future. And, and that's <laughs> what we need. So what we need is our energy minister to get with the program and and actually start working with with a with yeah. a plan going forward instead of this wailing about mm-hmm. um and, and it's actually yeah. a bit of a cheat because Wayne, what you're basically saying is the law's the law. And what he seems to be implying is, well, if you can't afford yeah. well, you should you shouldn't be you shouldn't, challenging. No. You, must yeah, you shouldn't be funded by other people to fight your cases. Uh, so basically I mean, you must give up. Yeah. You must, you must, yeah, because the law, we will ignore the law and you won't be able to fight us because you don't have the, money. Wedi Mantashe is somebody who just abuses his position of power completely. He's lost the plot. But Chris, yeah, I know you don't want to say too yeah, much. I, I think, uh, unfortunately, uh, there's a, so much politicking going on, mm. party infighting and factionalism, etc., that leaders like Wedi Mantashe, who also happen to be, uh, you know, the chairperson of the ANC, uh, they are distracted from the real job at hand. So we have this situation where so much talk is going into the, you know, the controversy around the wording and an article written by Dindiwe Sasule. Uh, you know, if that amount of effort was put into their real job, which is running the ministry and looking after energy, the eye would be on the ball a little bit better. But the eye is being distracted by a whole lot of politics. And, and I think being the chairman of the ANC and the minister of minerals and the minister of energy is too much for one person. Mm, yeah. um, and, you know, you need to uh, have people that can really <clears throat> focus on the job and be at the top of their game. Uh, and yeah. there's, there's an election coming up. There's always an election coming up and that always makes things more interesting. Oh boy. All right. Earlier on, I asked you for your comments. Can you afford uh, an increase of 20% on your electricity? If not, what can you afford? What do you think is fair? Let's get to your comments quickly. Amanda says inflation rate increase. Uh, Dave for Mark says no more than the inflation rate. Di Gibson says, we cannot afford an increase. I'm on a candidate attorney salary. My husband is retired. I reckon off the grid is better. We have already changed to a gas stove. Um, Lynn Kennedy says, I wish I could go off the grid. And I think there are a lot of people that share that sentiment with you, Lynn. Lorraine uh, again says, Nursa is as ineffective and as irrelevant as has been the ANC. Well, we'll talk about Nursa in a moment. Michael John Billsbury says, I've got solar panels for my geezer. Then just as a top up, I run the electric geezer for 45 minutes early in the morning. So you see people are, um, are, are adapting to this. Hey? Jeff Scott says, partially off grid. Um, Ruben Naidu says reasonable increase would be at the inflation rate. And I think most people would sit somewhere around there. Uh, Kelly Robinson says with the food price increases, fuel increases, rates and taxes increases, I definitely cannot afford any increase. Um, Simon Davenall says I'm on solar, but I feel that they've increased electricity so much in the last 10 years it forced me to go solar. Right now my street has no power, but because I do, uh, but I do because you cannot rely on Eskom and the municipality gives, give us a steady supply of electricity. I'm fed up with the blackouts. And um, uh, oh, Clive Beckett, oh, Clive, Clive, Clive's back um, with his uh, question. And, and a couple of weeks ago, Clive put the question to us, but he put it on my Tom London page. We never got to see it during the show. So he's asking when, and I think it's probably addressed to Wayne, when will we see the orange uh, overalls and high-ranking members? Well, we'll get to that question in a moment, Wayne. But I see Wayne, uh, Clive has said, pay me a visit tomorrow and I'll provide evidence why there should be a reduction charge, not an increase. Rampant cable theft and illegal connections all over the place. That's something that hasn't been introduced into the conversation yet this evening. Um, I ran the figures for my home. That's obviously to go off grid, approximately 230,000 rand. 
Um, Melissa Whitehorn says, we have solar panels and a grid-tie inverter that does most of our electricity. We've got a solar geyser to help. We did this in 2011. And I'll look for one or two more comments mm. here and see what you have to say about the price increases. And there's a lot of conversation going on. I won't be able to put everything up on uh, the screen tonight. Mm. Kelly Robinson says, overstaffed with the incorrect staff. No more technical staff. Dai says, overstaffed in some areas, understaffed in the others. And uh, lots of opinion flying around in the comment section tonight. You can be sure that the outer team and the comms team are watching your conversations and taking notes of it. So please do keep commenting. Let's move on to Kuburg. And uh, Liz McDade mentioned, you know, pumping energy into aging plants and beyond the life cycle of the plants and looking for ways to extend life spans of nuclear plants, which worries me a little bit. Maybe I shouldn't be worried about that. But whenever I hear nuclear and uh, past its life time cycle or its uh, its uh, its life uh, has been come to an end so to speak but now we'll revive it again i get a little bit worried and i know that outer has been watching this story and we've been talking to you about it for a number of months now let's talk to brendan slade now and ask brendan about this story of kuberg and the and the national nuclear regulator and we have been talking about government uh, and and government interference on uh, in soes for a while on the show are we seeing the same thing with the nnr uh, Brendan and um, and and what does that mean? Thanks for that question, Tom. Just to put it all in perspective, our South African SOEs are mostly creatures of statute. So that means there's a piece of legislation that gives life to that particular SOE or that state institution. So that piece of legislation also usually has a clause in there where it states that the executive or the minister ought to appoint the board of that particular SOE. So that's exactly the same case with the National Nuclear Regulator. And I, I, I will give you a chance to guess who the minister is who makes these appointments. That's uh, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Gwedi Montage. Um, unfortunately, and it's not a topic I want to go into uh, during tonight's show, but the concept of, of cater deployment is something that we cannot just, just ignore. It is very real, and this is something that convolutes the mandate of a particular state institution with that of the political agenda being pushed. So we've seen this across the board happening. We've seen this happening in the SABC in, in previous instances. But it is very clear in the instance of the NNR that some agendas may be pushed that the public may not necessarily be aware of. But we are, we are on that. Give us a breakdown on uh, civil society and civil society's representation on the NNR board, why this is an important principle. We've spoken about this before, getting civil society into the boards of these SOEs and of these Chapter 9 institutions, wherever civil society can play a part and have a voice on the inside. Uh, it seems to be an important uh, uh, topic to discuss and, 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 a, and perhaps a particularly useful strategy when it comes to sorting out the ills in our society. Um, just tell us about it, the NNR and civil society, whether that's possible and whether the, the idea has been, uh, been submitted or put forward. It, it's actually been there, Tom. Um, because the NNR is an administrator in terms of, of PAJA as well, it is a body that makes decisions that's within the public interest. So because it's within the public interest, there needs to be some form of scrutiny. And obviously, civil society is the voice for the public, and it is good for a civil society representative to be on that board. So before April 2021, that's last year, there was a vacancy on the NNR board for a representative of civil society. After uproar with working together with various civil society organisations, the minister then appointed Mr. Peter Becker from the Kuburg Alert Alliance to serve on the board as the representative of civil society at the time. So we were obviously very chuffed about this. It meant the, um, the board now had a representative to, to, to basically, to, you know, be the equilibrium, sure. be the opposing viewpoint My as voice. opposed to yes. the bias that's, that, that's installed there. So obviously this didn't play out quite as well. The legislation is also flawed in that the, it, it, say for example, the the civil society rep representative is absent in a particular meeting. His absence does not render the decision made or the resolution taken to be incorrect. 
So it, it's masquerading um, having a civil society rep- representative on the board. It actually doesn't mean anything if that civil society representative does not have proper powers and functions to actually perform its duty on, on behalf of civil society. So just, just to close on this question, um, strangely enough, Peter Becker was suspended by the minister last week uh, based on on forms of alleged misconduct. And that, that was also communicated by the Kuburg Alert Alliance. Exactly what he's being accused of can be accessed from their website. But I must say, it's a big blow to civil society. We really thought that we, I don't want to say we have our foot in the door with the NNR, but at least we, we had that sense of our voices being heard. And when decisions are being made that's within the public interest, it ought to be scrutinized by someone who represents. So, and that's, that's quite the blow. What's the what's the relevance of the timing of uh, Mr. Becker uh, leaving the the board and uh, how it relates to what's happening at Kuburg as we speak? Because that's the that's the common denominator in all of this is Kuburg, isn't it? Uh, that's exactly so. Liz mentioned earlier the um, life extension of Kuburg be- beyond the year twenty twenty four. So. During the course of last year, ESCOM submitted its application to extend the life of Kuburg beyond that that time period for an additional 20 years. So we also got got word during the course of of the holiday season that ESCOM is going ahead to to start with some refurbishment, maintenance and and so forth at Kuburg on the steam generators. And subsequently, a lot of other decisions also needs to be made during which the deliberations, the um, civil society representative needs to scrutinize those decisions. So if we go back to to who who suspended him in the first place, uh, it's a very convenient time for for them RE to get rid of a critic of of Kuburg when these important decisions on the future of Eskom uh, of, of of Kuburg is made. Well, uh, yeah, it it begs mm-hmm. more more answers than. Well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm watching some of the comments coming in on the comment section, yeah. and I see people are agreeing with you on that. Let's just um, let's just get to the heart of the nuclear matter quickly, shall we? Uh, and, and I expressed my reservation when it comes to nuclear, but that's only because I've been, you know, subject to Chernobyl and Fukushima over the years. And God forbid something like that happened in our country, and so we should just stay away from it. But it might not be the the, the logical, the the most logical thought I'm having. It's more of an emotional thought. So, so, so. So perhaps it's a, a good time to just clarify Outer's stance uh, when it comes to nuclear energy. Is Outer for or against nuclear energy? And, and just clarify that for the supporters. Tom, I will give you the short answer for the sake of the supporters, and I will leave the technical answers to the experts that have joined us as well. But in short, Outer is neither for or against nuclear, but Outer is pro-South Africa. So in this instance, the nuclear that is, or the new nuclear build program is not necessarily in the best interest for the country as, as it stands now. So say, for example, nuclear becomes an immediate thing tomorrow. It doesn't mean that tomorrow we switch on the lights and all of a sudden, oh, we've got nuclear power. These power stations or nuclear power stations need to be built. Uh, that is a question of how how is that going to be funded? So obviously it will then be funded via electricity tariffs. We as the taxpayer will will have to fund those things. We've seen the likes of Madupi and Kasile. We've seen the run runaway costs running there. We've we've seen what happened at Fukushima at, at Chernobyl. It, it's a whole question of safety. And the other question we need to ask: Do we trust the South African government to run something? as complex, as dangerous, as sophisticated as nuclear energy. So it's not a question of, is nuclear energy better than renewable energy? It's more a question of, is this right for South Africa, given the mix we have, given the future of energy sustainability going forward? Well, I know, that's pretty much the short answer. Yeah, I know if I was building a nuclear power station in South Africa, I wouldn't build it in Cape Town. I wouldn't build it anywhere near an area that had a big earthquake uh, 100 years ago, and you never know when the next one's coming. I'd build it right up on the top somewhere in Gauteng and uh, on nice stable land, if this is stable land. But anyway. As long as uh, it's not in your backyard. As long as it's not in your backyard. But I don't know. If I was getting the electricity for free as a quid pro quo there, uh, I might just take it and live with the hair that stands up and glowing eyes at 
at night or whatever happens. Of course, I'm just joking. All right. Uh, the, just, yes, of course, Liz. Oh, go ahead. I yeah. In, I just want to add in that one of the things that came out of the Zondo Commission was how Cabinet had been misled uh, with regard to the price of nuclear new build in South Africa. And uh, I think we did speak about it a little bit on this program, maybe, but just to remind the, the viewers that the document that was presented to Cabinet, I think, understated the cost significantly. Mm. Um, and when we look at the integrated resource plan, which is the electricity plan, due to public pressure in the comments period, the um, IRP changed from having like 9,600 megawatts of, of nuclear needed by 2030 to zero new nuclear needed. So we may, as the public, with our fear of nuclear, we may be shooting ourselves in the foot. Well, no, we are actually right there because we are, if we are going to scrutinize those costs, then we are going to be, be you know, Zondo Commission has showed it, the cabinet minutes are there. The officials presented to cabinet that nuclear was really cheap when it was actually okay all right got it all the wrong, figures were out wrong dollar exchange mm. uh, you know although Johan Ilof who has posted a comment I'm putting on the screen now says nuclear power stations have the longest lifespan out of any power station type we also have a very good nuclear regulated program would you agree with that comment can yeah. I come in here yeah of course can Chris I come yeah. in here? Mm. you know sometimes long life is a disadvantage and not an advantage it's especially true when the costs of different technologies are rapidly declining. If you lock yourself in to one nuclear country, Russia or China or whatever, to one nuclear vendor, Rosatom or Arriva or whatever, to one nuclear reactor design, pressurized water reactor or similar, you are locking yourself in to that vendor, that vendor country, that technology, that reactor design for the next 100 years. Now, in, a, in, in, a, in an environment of uncertainty, that is about the worst thing you can do. They say that nuclear is, uh, you know, in the long term, it's a no-brainer. But actually, in the non long term, it's a no-brainer that we shouldn't have nuclear sure. because it tires our hands for too long. Would you like to have bought a Nokia brick <laughs> cell phone <laughs> or a Model that had a T lifespan Ford, yes. of 100 years, <laughs> you know, when smartphones are got just it. around the corner? Okay, I got it. I got, <laughs> okay, I got it. I'm not arguing the points anymore. Let's stay with you, Chris, because I got a solution to all these problems. I don't know what the big deal is. Eh? You just pull a couple of big power ships into our ports, charge the South African consumer a huge price for the electricity and keep the lights on. What's the drama about? All right, let's talk about car power. Where are things with this car power ship project and the eight other projects of the so-called 2000 megawatt emergency risk mitigation IPP procurement program? What's going on with these ships? Well, like tomorrow is the day. Tomorrow is the day when financial closure is going to happen, according to our minister. Uh, and the deadline that he set, the 27th, by the way, that was the third extension of the deadline. Mm -hmm. It was actually July last year. Yes, it's and like it the announcement on ETOLS. Yeah. yeah. But it's now due to happen tomorrow. The trouble is it's not, it's not going to happen <laughs> okay. tomorrow. There's absolutely no sign of it because uh, because the, uh, the legal case with DNA energy has not been resolved. Uh, the, the Environment Ministry has not given inf environmental authorization. There's an appeal in progress that hasn't uh, been resolved. There's no license for, a, 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 you know, for, for, for a, a pipeline license. There's no uh, a, a fuel supply agreement in place. Uh, Eskom has not agreed to sign a power purchase agreement. There's about 10 outstanding issues. Ah, I don't know so what, nothing is going to happen no, tomorrow. I don't know what nothing. all you oaks are worried about. Just sign the agreements and start paying the money over, man. <laughs> you mentioned the objection uh, and the refusal of the Department of Forestry, Fisher, Fishery and Environment to grant environmental authorization. What's happening there? Nothing that anybody is aware of. What we do know is that Carpower has submitted an appeal to, uh, uh, to the DFFE's refusal to grant a license. 
uh, the, uh, the DFFE have not announced the outcome of that appeal. And if at the moment they do announce it, if and when they do, we have no idea when it will be. But the moment they announce it, there will be another this matter will be taken on in review of, in mm. review in the courts. So at the moment we're going through the internal DFFE process. All right. At the moment, uh, let's say Cop Power lose the appeal, they will take it to the courts on review. Sure. And if they win the appeal, the environmental organizations will take it on review in the courts. So this is a long It's going to go to appeal. From being All right, got it. Uh, any other stumbling blocks facing these projects? Plenty. I mean, the biggest one I think is Eskom are basically saying that they're not going to yet sign. Uh, they not the board has not approved in principle that they will sign a power purchase agreement to purchase the power from the car power ships. And until so that happens, the place. banks cannot close the deal. <laughs> nothing can happen. Nothing's and in that's place. That's just another issue. But there's about ten issues that are stopping financial closure. So even if one or two or three of them get resolved, there's still more and more and more. So I think we just need to sit back and, uh, with a packet of popcorn and watch this play out. Uh, it's fascinating. It's interesting. Sure. It keeps me awake at night, uh, but nothing happens. Uh, just finally, Chris, uh, I know that Arta is unhappy with the way car power should go about things when it comes to engagement with the public. Just tell us about these issues before we switch to the next topic. Yeah, so right in the middle of the December Christmas period festive season, suddenly uh, it, it came about that Carpower had put some adverts on various websites applying for different kinds of licenses. I'm talking here about fuel supply licenses, pipeline licenses, uh, trading licenses in gas, floating power ship, uh, floating uh, uh, storage and regasification plant licenses. The point that happened is this whole process started right in the middle of the holiday season when nobody was around. Not only that, they put the adverts on websites behind a paywall. <laughs> so the public couldn't even see the adverts, let alone, you know, respond to them, etc., etc. So these are the kind of processes that car powership uh, get involved in that are really uh, quite objectionable. And uh, now Alta uh, has decided to submit a letter of complaint to the regulator about the way in which uh, car power should goes about its business. And, and, and really the regulator should be on our side uh, saying, hang on, this is not in the public interest. Uh, you need to give the public an adequate time to comment. You shouldn't put it behind a paywall. You shouldn't put it in, in, in yeah. national newspapers, not just in some local website down in the Eastern Cape behind a paywall where nobody knows about it. You need to really do a proper public process. So Alta is going to complain to NERSA about that. I don't know if it will have any effect or impact, but, you know, we have to stand up and make our mm. voice heard. Wayne, is Alta keeping a close eye on developments here, ready to strike, so to speak? Yeah, absolutely. Our team is on the ball. Uh, there's so much happening. Um, it's amazing how fast and diligent this uh, team is. So without a doubt, yeah, we're watching all this stuff. Roland says, uh, Chris, I uh, don't know about that popcorn story because there might be a popcorn shortage soon. And then maybe you won't have electricity and fire up the microwave oven to eat the popcorn. Eh? All right. Uh, hey, here we are talking about uh, all these uh, technologies that are, you know, 50, 100 years old. We're still relying on fuel to move our cars around. And uh, the world is moving towards a greener future. I'm not saying it's here yet, but it's certainly getting here and we're moving towards it. But here in South Africa, here we are talking. Well, I, mean, I, think, I think we've got two or three electric cars that are sold as mo models in this country. We don't see any of the kind of action that the Europeans are seeing. Major motor manufacturers saying they'll be phasing out internal combustion engines by 2030, 2035. Th that's it. You know, I don't know who will be making combustion engines anymore. We'll, we will have turned to a world that drives electric cars. And here we are tonight talking about the fuel levy, Wayne Duvenage, because we're going to live with it for a while, and I'm sure that when there are electric cars, there'll be an electric levy or something else will pop up. But it's starting to get a little bit out of hand now. You know, 10 years ago, it wasn't too bad, and now all of a sudden, it's costing a thousand bucks or more to put some petrol in your tank to go and drive around town for a few days, and people are now starting to feel the pinch. Even if you're earning a good salary and you're driving a nice car and you had a petrol budget that you were used to, this year, it's costing you more than last year. 
Just take us through, and I know you're very passionate about this, Wayne. Just take us through the components of fuel levies and taxes. What are we paying for when we put a liter of petrol in the car? Well, it's going to be going up again next week, um, quite substantially again because of the Rand dollar exchange, the oil price. So it went over 20, popped down in January. It's going back over again in Feb. But February is the month when uh, the minister um, makes the decisions, Minister of Finance, uh, in the budget speech on increases to all sorts of taxes, fuel levies. One, and we've been watching this for a while. And it's gone over 200% in the last 10, just over 10 years or so. So, and the road accident fund, the 11 components um, in the fuel on uh, on a submission to the minister, because I think he's realized now that something has to happen. There are a number of components in the fuel, in the fuel price that were introduced 10, 15, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that don't apply anymore, but they've just left them there. Um, and, and we believe that there's about, there's about four or five components that can be discontinued. They add up to about 50 cents in the litre, but everything counts. And, uh, and then obviously the big one, I mean, the fuel levy is anything between 20 and 25% of the fuel price at any one time, just one of those levies. So, um, yeah, this is the month that we've got to put the pressure on. We've got a campaign that's rolling out. And I think the minister has indicated we have to look at reviewing how we make up this fuel levy or this whole total fuel basket. So, uh, and that's that's the interesting space. Do you think that we could get into a position where government reduces the percentages of some of its components on the fuel levy? I'm not talking about the actual purchase of the fuel. Uh, and they will still collect the same amount of revenue, but the price won't go up like it would have for the motorist. Is is that is that the basic thought behind it? No, they're gonna. They're not going to be able to. In, uh, if they look, we we're saying exactly what you're saying with electricity. You, we are paying for the sins of bad decisions over the last 15 years, and in the past, uh, you know, people just were not watching these increases. Now these increases have gone extremely high. So we're saying you can't increase them anymore. In fact, we want you to decrease them. But now they broke. So, you know, a, a 20, 30 cents reduction in the in the fuel levy uh, is going to cost them about 5 billion rand a year. Okay, so there Can is a cost. Yeah. yeah, there's going to be a cost. Uh, but but they have to do it because the, that's the other one is the road accident fund. Uh, over 340% increase in 10 years. Um and, and that's because the road accident fund has been so badly managed mm. that they've just thrown money at it. And they've just said, well, consumer, you must just pay. Now we're saying we can't. We're not, we don't, you just can't do this anymore. So they're in a, in a tight spot. It's elections coming up uh, and they've got to start listening to civil society. So, so Tabile, over to you, you know, um, we're, uh, we're having some interesting discussions on, on the engagements we're going to have with the minister. Well, let me bring Tabile Zuma into the conversation. Tabile is a project manager of the Accountability and Public Governance Division at Outer. What do these uh, different components of fuel levies uh, affect? Mo How do they affect motorists, uh, Tabile, and, and ordinary citizens? What's your position on that? Uh, good, good evening, Tom, and How's good evening it? to our Outer Good. I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for asking. And think, Tom, in terms of affordability, it, it it's very frank to actually put it that we cannot we, we, we cannot hide from the fact that fuel has become unaffordable for customers. Fuel levies and taxes too. South African citizens are, are consistently being burdened with the consistent increases in fuel uh, taxes and levies, mm. yet we are receiving little to no value for money on the taxes that we paid because of our poor policy, uh, economic policies and fiscal management. Currently, customers pay close to like 20 rands per liter of fuel, which is actually expected to increase next month. Reality speaking, customers are struggling to make ends meet because the high uh, because of the high cost of petrol and diesel, which which as a, a contributing factor to the difficulties of, of of fuel and absolutely the the economic pressures of the nation as a whole. In, in terms of the uh, CPI index that was released by Statistics South Africa, between 20, December 2020 and December 2021, fuel price increased by 40.5%, which is way above inflation. Yeah. So the impact uh, of these increases of 
uh, fuel uh, prices is significant. The, co um, the consistent hike in these fuel uh, have a potential to cripple our country's economy, of which is already in the glimpse to collapse. Usually, when these fuel increases, uh, uh, in, uh, when these fuel price increases, the cost of goods that are transported across the country increases. That's right. Which, uh, results yes, which results to the cost of uh, living for citizens to increase. We we, we we have seen this with the increases in our uh, in our food, in beverages, in household uh, items, as well as services. With also the the increases of these fuel also affect businesses at the as the day to day operation of the businesses increase, of which leads to the close down of, of businesses, retrenchments, and so on. Not only does it uh, uh, affect people with cars, it also affects the the the, the cost of, of of public transport, and knowingly that poor people cannot afford these increases uh, that have been passed by these high uh, fuel prices. And to put it into perspective, Tom. Uh, by the end of last year, the unemployment rate hit 35%, and yet our, 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 our government continues to burden uh, society with these increases in taxes. So we believe that our government is extracting enough money from, the, from society on fuel levies and, and taxes, and it, if, and should not, we, should, we, we, we call for the, these uh, levies to not be increased in this upcoming financial year to cushion the high impacts of the higher than inflation increases mm. from the past. Is that Arta's mm. uh, official position on the fuel levy then? Uh, our, our, our official position on this is that we welcome the, the, the minister's call for a review for the breakdown of the fuel uh, levy. We believe that some of these components of fuel are no longer applicable as, as, the, as the circumstances applicable of the time of inception of these policies have changed. The rationale, the purpose, the method and the calculation requires a revision. So with that being said, I think it is advisable uh, to, uh, for the minister to call a summit in, 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 in uh, and invite all the stakeholders to be involved mm. in the discussion on how can we break down this fuel and if to determine if some of these fuel components are still relevant and applicable. We also see that over the years, Alta have been calling for the, for no increases on the annual on the several components of fuel levies, which makes up um, the fuel price. So what we're calling for this time is saying no increases on the general fuel levy, as Wayne has explained that over the years it has increased for more than over and above 200 percent from 127 cents which which we paid back then and now we're currently paying three rands uh 84 cents we're also calling for the minister to 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 um do something in terms of the mismanagement of the ref fund as we know that it's currently con we're currently contributing two rands 18 cents on that per uh per liter of fuel so we're also calling for the scraping of the carbon tax uh, which is zero point, uh, which is ten cents per liter. What we're concerned about this, especially the carbon tax, is that there's no arrangements that are done by the by the states in, in 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 moving away from fossil fuel. Yet they are collecting this money, which we pay for every day. Yet there's nothing that they're doing in terms of of, of scraping the the use of, of fossil fuel. So why do we pay it when there's nothing being done in terms of scraping uh, of improving uh, carbon uh, reduction? And we also call the scrap of the demands management levy of which is also 10 cents per liter sure. we believe that the application of this levy is no longer effective and uh it's it's it's, it's all viable it will influence a customer's behavior and should be continued wow okay you threw a whole lot of different levies at me and it's just confused my brain wayne you're the minister what <laughs> would you do about this Yes, so what Tabila is saying is, is, is we're reviewing all of them, and they, some of them are just superfluous. They're defunct. They just feed into this massive trough of the fiscus, and it's misspent. Uh, and we're, and we're you know, stroking their conscience on, on saying, well, why? Well, what, why do you keep just mm. pumping up these levies? So it's complex, as you can hear. There's, there's quite a few, and they just crept in over time, and nobody stopped this bus. So we're trying to stop this bus, but it's moving. And moving money into the fiscus that they can't afford to lose. But we have to raise this flag all the time. And we have to shout louder now. And, and we think they're starting to listen. So to get behind this campaign as we lead into February's budget speech, uh, no increases to these levies. Government needs to find the efficiencies within the state in other places. And they need to find the efficiencies within within uh, various departments. I, I just can't tell you how much money we lose just through absolute bad decisions Crazy. made every day. 
So lots happening in the front end. Well done, Tabile. It's a, it's a good project you're managing here and uh, look forward to uh, seeing uh, whether the minister is going to respond. I think Inok Kondangwana is asking for this input for the right reasons. Mm. He's the minister of finance that is a little bit more astute uh, than, than past ministers. So, yeah. It's going to be fun and games. Well, that's where we leave it tonight. We've run out of time. The show's gone so quickly this evening. Uh, but before we go, though, Wayne, uh, any last comments for the Outer Hour viewers and your Outer supporters? Yeah, just yeah, love, love all you guys. Thanks again for tuning in and uh, for your contributions and support. Speak to your neighbors, your friends, your colleagues. Uh, everybody needs to give. You know why? Because you can get it all back in your tax returns, every single cent of it. So thanks again for your support and thanks to this amazing team and to you, Tom. Well, Alta has Section 18A status, as Wayne alluded to. We discussed it in the show last week, but uh, you'll be able to get your money back uh, on your tax return for your donations to Alta, which is just lovely, isn't it? Uh, undoing tax abuse and then getting it back, uh, it's just I think it's brilliant. Uh, but listen, I've got the address for Outer's store, online store on the screen at the moment. If you'd like to buy, I think they've got caps for sale. You can buy a cap on the store. Uh, and the big item is permitted plundering the book written by Ilza Sazvedel, uh, which will take a look at, uh, well, we've been through it many times. It's just a fascinating look at uh, state capture and corruption in this country. Uh, that book is available at shop.outer.co.za. I think last week when we discussed the price, it was around 320 rand, including postage and packaging inside South Africa. That's another way to support Alta. Well, that's it from me and the team this evening. And what a great team it's been. And pop some of them up on screen right now. There's Chris Yell and Brendan Slade and Wayne Divinage waving goodbye to you. And we'll move the other two onto the screen. And that's Tabile Zuma and Liz Mac Dade who say good evening to you too as we close the show. All that's there for me to do is wish you a fantastic seven days. We've got the seven-day relationship, you and me. We see each other on a Wednesday night for a one-hour date. Uh, and we only talk through a screen. We've never sat down and had a cup of coffee, man. Uh, but I look forward to my 7 p.m. on Wednesdays with you. I hope you do look forward to your 7 p.m. with uh, the outer team. And, and if you watch the show post live, and I know a lot of people watch it the next day or a few days later, thank you very much for your support. Your view is just as valuable. So I wish you a wonderful seven days. I hope you make bucks. I hope you stay healthy. I hope the people that are nice to you treat you kindly and that you do the same in return. But more than anything, I hope you return next Wednesday at 7 p.m. And bring a friend next week. Tell someone about it and bring them. You can chat in the comment section while we uh, while we debating all these issues. Bring a China with you next week for the outside. I'll bring a date. Don't be late. 7 p.m. Until then, I'm Tom London, and I'm sure already. Our fight to eradicate corruption, maladministration, unethical leaders, and the abuse of taxpayers' money by those in power continues. It's fresh. It's fearless. And focused, the outer hour, where your voice matters.